you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. Why would any person deliberately do things to bring harm or pain to their own bodies? It seems to defy common sense, especially if we suppose that teenagers are much more likely to do things that bring pleasure and avoid pain. One of the more difficult problems to understand is when teenagers are intentionally cutting themselves regularly. Cutting is one type of problem included in the broader category of self-harm or self-injury. Acts of self-harm are often confused with suicide attempts, especially the habit of cutting. Teens who self-injure are most likely not suicidal, and yet an accidental suicide is always possible. Like many addictive sorts of teenage problems, self-harm is typically very hidden and secretive. Because these types of behavior seem so strange, adults can often either ignore the signs or fail to deal with the underlying heart issues. For the Christian, self-harm is more than a body problem. It is a soul-based problem that must be solved biblically. Unfortunately, there are many ways for teenagers to harm themselves. Some would put drug and alcohol use on this list, which certainly has some merit. Suicide is also certainly a type of self-injury, but will be covered as its own unique issue in another podcast. Ultimately, the more typical self-harm problems are habitual, repetitive ways to bring controlled physical pain to the body. The following are the most common problems. First, cutting. This habit has become synonymous with self-harm. It involves making cuts or deep scratches to the body with any sharp object, typically knives or razor blades. The arms, legs, and the front of the torso are most often cut since they are more easily hidden. Cutting is highly habit-forming and is typically practiced more often by young women. Then there is hair pulling, also known as trichotillomania. The problem of hair pulling is often considered as an issue of impulse control. Unable to control self, a person pulls hair from any part of the body, but especially from the scalp. Habitual hair pulling leads to patchy bald spots, eventually requiring the teen to wear hats, scarves, and even wigs all the time. The third type of self-injury is referred to as skin picking. This behavior includes severely pinching or scratching the skin with fingernails to the point that bleeding occurs and marks remain on the skin. Or there's the type called impact with others or self. This type of self-harm includes either banging or punching objects or self to the point of severe bruising or bleeding. This type of self-injury is seen more often in males. And then finally, there's the category of ripping, carving, or burning skin. Self-injury can also be accomplished by ripping the skin, carving words or symbols in the skin well beyond tattooing, or burning the skin with cigarettes or other heated objects.
So you can probably see that we need to dig down deep to truly understand the problem of self-harm. What do these aberrant behaviors show us about the heart of our teenagers? The problem of self-harm illustrates the fact that sinful hearts and minds find all sorts of ways to sin against God, self, and other people. Since God is the creator of our bodies, we have a responsibility to be a good steward of our bodies to his glory. Where the natural impulse is to nurture and care for self, our sin distorts and suppresses this desire. And even though it may seem that activities of self-harm only harm self, other people are also harmed in the process. So how does God's word speak to our teens who are deliberately injuring themselves? There are no examples in the Bible of people cutting themselves, are there? As with all other problems of the heart, mind, and soul, there are basic biblical principles that apply and illuminate. We need to gain a better understanding of why teenagers want to harm themselves and how they can be freed from such destructive behaviors. First, we need to address the problem of pain. When all things are working normally, God has equipped our bodies with vital pain receptors that communicate important information to our brains. What would happen if you put your hand on a hot stove and felt absolutely no pain? Your hand would probably stay in that position way too long, giving you a third-degree burn or much worse. So we praise God when he gives us the ability to feel pain, as well as the immediate desire to respond in the healthiest of ways. We not only need to respond to pain in normal ways, but seek to avoid painful things in the first place as well. Therefore, when a teenager actually seeks to inflict pain on self, there's a problem, maybe a number of problems to solve. Rather than responding to pain with the normal, wow, that hurts, I don't ever want to do that again, the teen who is active in self-harm says, I want, I need that pain in my life. Pain has ceased to accomplish its God-given purpose. Therefore, a place to begin with a 15-year-old Nora is to talk to her about the God-designed purpose of pain. Her cutting of places on her arms and legs is not only painful, but only increases in pain as she re-injures the same area over and over again. Nora's body is telling her to stop, to quit the pain-filled activity, yet her mind is overriding her body. So at the heart level, any type of self-harm is rebellion against God's created order. It is telling God that I want pain, I need pain in my life, even though pain is supposed to drive us to find ways to solve the source of pain. Subverting God's purpose will not only be physically detrimental, but there are spiritual consequences as well. How can Nora commune with Christ while cutting herself? How can she endure pain that is self-inflicted? Teens who are harming self are creating a life system that is only creating confusion and disorder. Again, we ask, why would our teenager choose pain rather than avoid it? What makes pain the better option? Well, maybe the self-harm is the teen's way of feeling something. When an individual is seeking pain rather than avoiding it, the real disconnect might be on the emotional level. 
In other words, feeling pain is a way to feel something, even if that something is negative and painful. When you talk to Nora, she is embarrassed about being discovered, but hardened and stoic in her emotions. Asking her how she feels about her cutting gets very little response. Her face is stony as she talks about her habit, even though she admits this is not a healthy behavior. This can be the case for many teens who are cutting, especially teenage girls. For a variety of reasons, they are either cut off from their emotions or are working overtime to suppress any difficult feelings. Again, cutting or other self-harm activities don't necessarily make a teen feel more or even feel better, but at least feel something. Therefore, when a teenager is cutting in order to feel, we need to find out why difficult emotions are being avoided. Not all teens express their emotions in the same way, but the purposeful protection or suppression of emotions goes against God's design yet again. Is there sadness and grief that is too hard to face? Or is there deep-seated anger that the teen is too scared to let out? Whatever the case, the teen may need to be convinced that it is good and normal to experience emotions. She may need to actually learn what it means to talk about these feelings in a healthy way. Cutting may give the illusion of provoking an emotional response, but it is really subverting normal emotional experience. In other words, if pain is the only way I can feel, then all my feelings will only be connected to pain. And that means pain will actually be the only thing that ends up making me feel happy. So it is vital to discover what is keeping the teen from being free to experience and express a wide range of essential emotions. Now let's talk about the dynamic of relief and pleasure. For 16-year-old Opal, her compulsive hair pulling brings her relief from much of the pain in her life. Her parents seem to always be fighting. She is miserable at school, and her friends don't give her much attention. Opal's self-harm allows her to escape from the difficult things she cannot solve. Just the process of choosing which hairs to pull and the feeling of the tinge of pain followed by release takes her mind to another place. Now that her trichotillomania has become a long-standing habit, it would only bring more tension in her life if she did not pull her hair out. So we must always pay attention to the painful situations that exist in the life of the teenager. We must investigate relationships, family life, and everything that is afflicting the teen. While it is unhealthy to find relief in hair pulling or any other form of self-harm, it must be recognized how the teen has come to find it effective. Unfortunately, there are also self-harming teens who move from mere relief to pleasure. In this way, self-harm becomes similar to masochism, but without the sexual element. Again, it is counterintuitive for inflicting pain to become pleasurable, yet our brains can conflate and confuse the experiences over time. In this way, self-harm literally becomes a fleshly experience, with the seeking of pleasure becoming the priority. Our teenagers who are involved in self-harm would do well to dwell on Paul's words to the Galatians, found in Galatians 6, verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
We need to lead our teenagers to find relief and pleasure in the Spirit and in the works of the Spirit, not in the flesh. By harming the flesh, they are acting in the flesh and not in the Spirit. Peace and joy are the fruit of the Spirit, where simple relief and self-centered pleasure are works of the flesh. Then there's the issue of failing to cope with life. Whether a teen is cutting, pulling hair, scratching skin, or practicing any other sort of self-harm, he or she could be simply struggling with life itself. The teenage years can be normally stressful, and there may be additional stressors unique to your particular teen. Patrick, a 17-year-old, inflicts various types of pain on himself when he is stressed out. When asked, he shares that he feels a lot of pressure to perform in school, in football, and in life in general. He has always been hard on himself, refusing failure as an option. Digging deeper, Patrick admits the fact that he has two very successful parents, and that's also very weighty on his mind. A consistent culprit of many teen problems is the failure to handle the hard things of life. So there's room for us to empathize and show compassion for struggling teenagers. Living in a fallen world brings hardship from without and within, as well as the temptation to experiment with unhealthy ways to deal with affliction. A related question is, why do so many teenagers lack basic coping skills today? Coping is simply the effort and ability to deal with difficult situations in positive ways. This may be painting with a broad brush, yet it certainly appears that each successive generation finds it harder and harder to cope with the typical problems of life. Are parents really doing the necessary training to enable their children to be resilient? Or are they actually contributing to some of this fragility? Additionally, there is a higher calling for Christian parents and teenagers. Rather than just being stronger, tougher, or able to effectively cope, we must train our teens to be strong in the Lord. We want them to pursue hearts of wisdom so they can face the trials that will inevitably come their way. In order to put away self-injury behaviors, they will need to learn and embrace strategies that depend on the Lord's strength, not on their own. What will often be found is that the teen who is harming self is extremely self-reliant, as well as very unteachable. Hopefully, when the self-harm is exposed, it will move the teen from humiliation to true humility. Now let's talk about the principle of control and power. Another element potentially connected to the problem of self-harm is related to the struggle of coping with reality. When talking to Nora, you discover that she believes she has absolutely no control in her life. Everything is out of control in her family life, at school, and within her relationships. Cutting has given her a feeling of control that she doesn't feel anywhere else. So how does self-harm give a sense of control? Part of it is the secrecy as the teen who is cutting has to be deceptive, covering up with clothing and excuses. Another control aspect is the cutting itself as a teenager has to learn how much is not too much, where to cut and where not to cut. 
Similar to the control of a surgeon's hand, cutting has a meticulous and precise nature to it. Releasing just enough blood or the right amount of pain takes thought and effort. Finally, the control occurs in context of the risk to life that is involved. The teenager knows at some level that she is taking her life into her own hands. Especially over time, Nora will come to believe she has control of her life that she really doesn't. So we may need to talk to our teen about his or her need for control. What is so out of control in life that he or she is grasping for the control of self-harm? Relatedly, teens who are cutting often feel a sense of power in almost a godlike way. This is especially true when parents or friends or youth ministry workers are unable to stop a teen from cutting. In almost a threatening way, a teen can resort to self-harm to punish parents or friends. Holding the behavior over their heads will end up making them feel very powerful indeed. Do you recognize the heart problem here? The desire to be in control, to be all-powerful, has been in the human heart since the fall of Adam and Eve. We should not be surprised when our teenagers seek ways to control their own lives, especially if they feel powerless on their own. The solution is not to find healthy ways to obtain power and control, but to rest in the almighty power and control of their faithful father. The challenge will be to discover why your teen is not trusting in God's sovereign work in his or her life. Well, to properly understand the problem of self-harm, we must also consider the possibility of trauma, neglect, or abuse. Whenever a teenager is engaged in behavior that endangers or abuses self, there's a great possibility that he or she has been traumatized in some way. Pain inflicted by another can be transferred to pain inflicted by self. If there was physical or sexual abuse that was covered up or not dealt with well, self-harm can manifest as a sort of self-punishment. All sorts of abuse may bring any of a variety of destructive consequences into the life of a teenager. So it is essential to check to see if there is any unconfessed trauma, abuse, or even early neglect. Emotional scarring can become symbolized and visualized with the physical scarring of cutting, tearing, or burning the skin. Deep-seated anger and resentment can be manifested in a willingness to harm self in the place of harming another. Trauma from the past can act as a bondage from which the teen is figuratively clawing to become released. For young girls who are sexually abused, cutting continues the punishment they think they deserve. If trauma, abuse, or neglect is present, it is essential to lovingly confront the victim mentality that is being perpetuated by the habit of self-harm. Compassion and empathy are certainly required when genuine abuse is discovered. But the impulse to continue to harm self after being hurt by another demonstrates a wrong view of self. The good news of the gospel is that Christians who suffer harm do not have to hold on to an identity of victimhood. While painful and devastating, abuse doesn't have to have the final word in the life of the teenager. Because of the redemptive work of Christ and the renewing power of the Spirit, old lives can become new again. So even though the satanic power of continued victimization is potent in the lives of many teens, 
It is no match for the perfect power of God. Again, this is in no way minimizing the ongoing effects of abuse or even extreme neglect. There are real consequences in the life of an abused teen that must be addressed. Yet we must not forget to proclaim the rescue of all who are hurting and in pain by our compassionate God. Then there's the cycle of guilt and shame to consider here. If a teenager has suffered from past physical or sexual abuse, there is already guilt and shame that must be addressed. In other cases, a teenager may be guilty of a secret sin or experiencing shame for something hidden as well. Both guilt and shame are co-conspirators in several typical teenage struggles, including self-harm. The problem becomes that cutting or any other form of self-injury creates a cycle of guilt and shame. Even if the teen isn't a Christian, self-harm is clearly not within the normal range of human behaviors. For those who are Christians, they will certainly experience true guilt over any self-harm, followed by shame when others discover it. So as much as the activity is in response to guilt and shame, it produces more guilt and shame. This is a cycle that is hard to break when it becomes central to the teen's view of self. Now that Nora's cutting has been exposed, she is humiliated. Since she was caught at church, everyone in the youth group is talking about her. So while Nora should be ashamed of her sinful behavior, being rejected or shunned by her peers will bring even more shame. When sin becomes a community experience, then it is vital that other Christian teens show Nora the compassion and love of Christ. Always remember that biblical counseling is concerned with more than just the individual suffering, but the connecting relationships as well. While other teens cannot be forced to accept and love someone who is harming self, they must be trained to act as true followers of Christ. They must heed the call of the Apostle Paul. If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. The cycle of guilt and shame will be more easily broken when there are supportive parents, family members, and Christian brothers and sisters. When self-harm comes out of the darkness, it should not force a teenager into the shadows, but into the light of the love of the Lord and his people. Which leads us to think about the principle of attention-seeking. Opal has desired a relationship with her father for a long time. Due to the busyness of his work and hobbies, Opal's dad has given her very little attention throughout the teenage years. If he is honest, he just doesn't know how to relate to a teenage girl and all the emotional drama. Opal's ongoing habit of hair-pulling always gets a response from her dad when he actually notices it. Now, this doesn't mean that Opal is consciously harming herself just to get her dad's love and attention. Yet teens who are not enjoying the time and connection with their parents can end up using negative behaviors to elicit attention. If Opal can recognize that her dad gives her more attention when she is doing bad things, it will help her to resist the temptation. Opal's father also needs to be counseled to get more involved in her life and not just to solve a problem in her life. This is another example of how all the problems of our teens are opportunities for the hearts of parents to reconnect with the hearts of their teenagers. Teenage attention-seeking behavior isn't just limited to interaction with parents. 
Some teens who are cutting, scratching, or burning themselves may be looking for attention from their friends or peers. This is especially true if the teen has been doing other rebellious things to make a name for self in the community. Maybe Nora feels on the fringe of her youth group, so she is actually enjoying her newfound attention. Or, as in the case of Patrick, a popular teen may not want to be known for being righteous and good all the time. So the same community that is needed to be supportive and helpful can be used by the self-harming teen to find a desired self-centric place. What is the wise way to handle a teen who is seeking attention? Not giving attention will probably just give more fuel to the problem, while more attention will possibly build pride and self-centeredness. The only way through this dilemma is to show the teen how his or her behavior is impacting the family and broader community and challenge him or her to move beyond self. When the teen begins to see the impact on others, it can help the desire to self-harm be transformed into the activity of helping others instead. Here are just a couple more thoughts on the problem of self-harm. First, we need to talk again about the power of addiction. For all the reasons already discussed, self-harm can become a serious and even life-threatening addiction. Since it appears to give emotional security and control, cutting ends up controlling the teenager. By their secrecy and hiddenness, self-injurious behaviors can easily entangle the teen into bondage. Even though there is pain involved, hurting self becomes pleasurable and comfortable, which means entrapment. Always remember that all human beings outside of Christ are prone to addiction because of our inborn slavery to sin. Even as Christians, we can turn ourselves back over to our slave masters rather than submitting to the Lord Jesus and his control. Therefore, it is naive to believe that teenagers can simply quit cutting or hair pulling or practicing the various other harmful behaviors. They must learn the power of addiction and how they are not in control of what they think they control. Stopping will require a real break from the stubborn hold of bondage. So what part do parents play in the handling of this particular addiction? Should razor blades and knives be locked up? fingernails be filed down and hair be shaved off? While there certainly should be increased accountability between teen and parent or biblical counselor, there are just too many ways to self-harm for blocking measures to be efficient. The seriousness of addiction must be asserted to the teen with measures in place when temptation arises. But as with all addictions, there needs to be a change of heart and mind, not just a change of behavior. What will fill the void when a teenager is giving up the habit of cutting, scratching, or hair pulling? Even though the dynamic is similar to a drug or alcohol addiction, there's not a substance to avoid in the bondage of self-harm. So the focus must remain on what is going on in the heart, mind, and emotions in order to deal with the underlying issues. The addiction will lose its power as the teenager enjoys God's grace and begins to let go of stubborn attitudes of the mind. As with all forms of bondage, it will take time to change a habit and engage in more biblical behaviors and activities. And finally, what does self-harm do to the temple of the Holy Spirit? 
Addressing the sin of sexual immorality, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Even though Paul probably didn't have self-harm in view here, the fact is that as believers, the body of the teenager is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Harming self is an abuse of the Spirit's temple. It is ignoring the fact that our bodies are not our own to do with as we please. If your teen is a professing Christian, he or she needs to know who inhabits his body, thereby owning his or her body. All forms of self-harm to the body are akin to defacing a holy place of worship. This line of gospel-centered thinking is a much better approach than teaching the teen to love his or her body. We are called to honor and respect our bodies out of a sincere love for who owns and resides in our bodies. In the end, any form of deliberate self-injury does not glorify God or sanctify us. If your teen wants to pursue a heart of wisdom in this matter, it begins with asking if the behavior glorifies God. This may sound overly simplistic to teenage ears, yet it is gospel truth. The way we treat our bodies either glorifies God or glorifies something or someone else. Who gets glory when skin is cut, carved, or burned? Who is glorified when bald spots are purposely created on the scalp? Even the teenager who is harming self is not really glorified in the positive sense of the word. Unfortunately, self-harm does magnify the person, showcasing a worship of self rather than the worship of God. So in a gracious way, we challenge teens like Nora, Opal, and Patrick to focus on glorifying God rather than self. Even though it may be more painful not to inflict pain, the promise of spiritual blessing in Christ should not be ignored. If the body really is the temple of the Spirit, it must only be used in the worship of God and not the worship of self. If you want to learn more about helping teens biblically, remember to pick up my forthcoming book, Pursuing a Heart of Wisdom, Counseling Teenagers Biblically, available from Christian Focus. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.